Welcome to the Forest Path Podcast. This talk is called Establishing the Fundamentals and is by the Thai Forest Meditation Master Ajahn Mahabhuwa Nyanapa Sampanyo. This translated talk appeared in the publication Sanditiko Dhamma, which was translated by Stephen Towler. Thankfully, he made this translation available for free distribution for non-commercial purposes. And as such, we can present the audio version of the English translation for you on the Forest Path podcast. A word of caution before proceeding any further. Ajahn Mahabhua was known for his uncompromising style and the depth of his teachings. These teachings are mostly aimed at practicing monks, but will also be of benefit to lay people who have been practicing meditation for some time. People who are new to Buddhist teachings may find these teachings hard to understand or even just plain incomprehensible. If you are fairly new to Buddhist teachings or meditation practice, then I recommend you go along to the Ajahn Brahm podcast or to the Treasure Mountain podcast as the teachings there are usually more accessible to a general audience. If you are an avid fan of Deeper Dhamma, then please proceed. In the description below, I've added a link to the Forest Path podcast website, which includes the text translation for those that may prefer to read along. You can also find links to contact me and offer feedback about these podcast episodes on the Forest Path podcast website. I've enjoyed and benefited from making this episode, and I hope you enjoy and benefit from listening to Sanditiko Dharma by Ajahn Mahabhuwa. Establishing the Fundamentals by Ajahn Mahabhuwa These days I'm becoming more concerned about monks and novices. I feel that, at present, the monks' practice of Buddhism is not up to scratch. It's not normal. So much so, it's quite concerning for both you and I equally. There's no one to blame for this because the kalesas are to be found in the hearts of everyone. They coerce us and then display stubbornness right before our eyes because this comes automatically to them. It's their way of being experienced and skillful, using the chitta as a tool of work in order to impose their life cycle upon the hearts of all sentient beings, and not only that, but to build endless heaps of dukkha in these hearts. This is something that the world doesn't see, and this is why I want to speak about it. What is the spot that's the danger to the world? In the Dharma speak, it's called the Kalesa. These are toxic things that dwell in our hearts. They sugarcoat and conceal the heart, which renders them invisible in both gross and subtle amounts. Sentient beings have no time to alert themselves to these because the sugar-coated medicine of the Kalesas permeates everything. It lets us take satisfaction in all things, however they manifest. It's the sugar-coating which comes out at the same time that infatuates all beings and deludes them to the extent that they haven't got a clue What's going on? Gross calaces coat in a gross way. Regular calaces coat in a regular way. Fine calaces coat in a fine way. No matter how fine they are, they still manage to succeed in applying the coating. There are no kinds of calaces 
that don't incorporate sugar coating as a lure in the behaviour that they exhibit. This is something that is very discouraging. It's okay for monks who practice in order to achieve Magapala Nibbana to be individual in some respects. The things they ought to understand are the threats that exist inside the heart, the things that the sugar has coated in keeping with the intensity of the kalasas, the sweetness of the coating which seduces sentient beings belongs to the kalasas. They are constantly coating, layer after layer. This is a law of nature. If you monks have never understood this before, then remember this well. Often to the future, when the chitter is clever and quick-witted, the things I have mentioned will start to emerge as the sati and panya of the practitioner progress through various levels. At first, these things will become apparent in stages, and then there will be the first glimpse of their venom and threat. If there hasn't been some training of the chitta over the many eons, the story in a nutshell is that, for oneself, there is no end to this life cycle of sugarcoating. There will just be a continuation of the status quo. That's the way it is. This was something that the Lord Buddha was despondent about, because he could see the real dangers, but worldlings can't, because the Kalesa's sugarcoat obscures this, their view. The only contentment the Kalesas give is when their sugarcoating comes out. This point is particularly important. In present times, the Buddhist religion is like an island, the high ground, that is slowly but surely shrinking. It's already shrunk quite a lot. This is to say, the Kalesas are laying siege and offering their wares all the time. They don't let you see what's going on. That is, everywhere you turn, these Kalesas offer their wares and we're not even aware of it. They come from every corner and keep us ignorant. They do this through various objects that become significant devices of deception. These objects that are the Kalesas' tools of trade come in every shape and size. They are artifices of the Kalesas that come to exterminate Dhamma. They promote themselves and make themselves points of interest for worldlings. Their influence increases daily. Every make, model and type that comes out is distributed. You can't keep up with the pace. Ordinary sati and panya on their own can't keep up with the pace. These things bombard us from every angle, from every corner. There are only the endless throngs of kalesas inside the heart. And another thing, the kalesas depend on those external objects that come and seduce us. Their trickery and deception which permeates its way inside is all about the delusion that already exists within our hearts. Delusion welcomes these things with open arms. It makes it easy to be bamboozled by them and difficult to come to understand them. They slot in from all angles. Every sentient being knows dukkha. The heart is an expert at knowing, so why wouldn't they know dukkha? However, nobody realises the burden associated with it. Accept that dukkha is dukkha. You struggle and strive until you die, which blinds you from seeing where the punishment associated with this dukkha comes from. This is an important point. It was for this reason that the Lord Buddha taught about training the chitta, which is the same as observing the heart. The heart is a mega danger on account of the fact that the super dangerous kalesas are buried deep 
and I mean deep in the heart, so much so that there's almost no chance of seeing them, and this leads you to consider that this is the true nature of the heart. There's only a heart jam-packed with calaces. Whichever corner they appear from, delusion emerges with them. Confidence in these calaces also occurs at the same time. This all occurs when the chitter is disposed to thinking, such as when Sankara starts to imagine things. Whatever scenario is imagined, trust in it arises simultaneously. This prevents you from seeing the real culprit as delusion comes with it. Whether your thoughts are about animals, people, women, men, or anything whatsoever, good or bad, they are just a cause of attachment. It's irrelevant whether the thoughts are good or evil. It's whether they're worthy of attachment or not. They are worthy as far as the calaces are concerned. These calaces that will completely fool and deceive worldlings. So much so that these worldlings won't know what's going on. You see, this is why the Lord Buddha taught about observing the heart by meditating, for example. This is called the real work for the heart. It will clear away those things that are a danger to us. It lets us gradually come to know what's what, as knowledge steadily expands out into those dangerous things. It all starts when the heart is passionate and agitated. At this stage, it's incapable of entering samadhi, that is, the kalesas are making their presence felt. The chitter is conceited, cocky and brash all the time. It's never content. This is the story of the kalesas through and through, forcing us to think and imagine things insatiably. At this stage, the chitter has no fear or dread. There's just a constant conviction in what it's doing. It's impossible for it to be aware of what's going on. It's because of this that the Lord Buddha taught us to observe the chitta with sati. When this happens, this point of observation is the point that you should be aware of. Know it through sati. Observe the chitta. For example, those whose meditation hasn't got very far shouldn't go doing much thinking. They should focus steadfastly on having the parikama stuck like glue to the heart. This should be done through sati that is also committed and steadfast. They shouldn't wish for maga or pala or anything other than the parikama that they are currently reciting with sati. This is all they need to do. These people will be the ones who constrain conceit and arrogance that are passions which the kalesas spew out. These people will be the ones that slowly come to understand what's going on. Force yourself, no matter how much you desire to think about something. Look upon this desire as being an extreme heat. You have to really want to do it to this extent. If you don't, there's no chance you'll become concentrated. The chitta won't enter into a peaceful state. It can't be in any sort of peace and stillness that is samadhi. If you can't do this, use sati and panya to go against the tide and really impose them through chitta bhavana. Employ sati as a tool to compel the heart to keep the two of them from separating. This is all about being committed and steadfast so that you can see the value and harm of the dhamma and the kalesas that are in the same heart. You must employ restraint, endurance, persistence, strength, defiance of every kind through the application of diligent effort. For instance, we use some aspect of Dhamma as a parikama, such as buddho, 
the rules for doing this must be established. Don't go hoping for Maga or Pala or anything other than Budo and Sati being in perfect harmony as a result of diligent effort. This is fundamental to the dampening of the chitta's conceit, arrogance, brashness and petulance and is done by the power of enforcing the parigama. Because Sankara is familiar with thinking and imagining, it is the Sankara of Samudhya and it builds the fire which roasts us. However, the Sankara thought process that is associated with a parikama, such as Buddho, is Sankara that is on the side of Magga. This will constrain the Sankara that is on the side of Samudhya by constantly having Sati as a controller. This is it. This is where we will see the results. I want all of you to commit this to memory. I'm old now. I'm concerned about my friends and companions. As for me, I'm fine. I've told you before, as far as this world is concerned, I'm simply going through the motions. I'm being straight with you. I'm speaking from the highest authority. My behaviour is purely for the conventional world and follows whatever conventions are acceptable in that world. I practice the behaviour that the world finds acceptable. If I'm wrong, then I admit I'm wrong. I don't allow the behaviour that I maintain to be in the wrong. If I'm right, I acknowledge that I'm right. This behaviour continues to follow what is right and proper, something which is habitual to these khandas. The part of my heart that would get involved with all those things has long since completely ceased to be a problem. In this realm of supposition, the conventional world, there's absolutely nothing that can infiltrate this heart. To say that this heart is entirely beyond the conventional world would not be incorrect. Also, this is absolutely crystal clear in my heart, a heart that really knows that this is true. Just as I have told my companions previously, in 2493 of the Buddhist era, heaven and earth came tumbling down in this heart which is the same as saying, the calaces were cast out from my heart. A heart that's murky and refuses to see has only the calaces for company. When it clears to the extent that it can appreciate 100% its detrimental situation, then it will have a degree of brightness, but not to its fullest extent. What prevents this from being the fullest extent is, of course, the calaces. They prevent us from knowing and seeing by being obstructive and by concealing themselves. Even if everything in Lokadatu wasn't defective, the chitta would still fail to see things for what they are. The Kalesas launder everything. We trust the Kalesas laundering and believe that those things are nothing to do with the Kalesas at all. This is a very important point. It's because of this that worldlings go wrong and why, to them, there are no such words as fear of an insatiable appetite. Don't go believing that there's some point where you'll be contented with the heart's thoughts and imagination. There isn't one. As soon as you wake up, you're already thinking. The engine of the wheel of life is started the moment we wake and continues until we fall asleep. If it wasn't for sleep, humans would die very easily. They wouldn't get to go anywhere before they fell off the perch. During sleep, thoughts are curbed. That is to say, their drive mechanism, the kalesa, is also restrained. But the moment we rise, they're back at work again. It's like there's nothing preventing them from doing so. 
This is the natural state of affairs for the chitta, whose work is the wheel of life. It's automatic for the hearts of beings. This is the way it is for them all. Now, when we are meticulous and serious about the Dhamma, and what can result from it, we must employ strictness, restraint, and forbearance as countermeasures. It's as if we are in a fight in the ring. Whoever gives in loses. Fighting or boxing in the ring, each fight fighter wants to be triumphant. Right now, the Kalesas are the champions before they've even gotten into the ring. It's because of this that our effort is a joke, even before we step foot in the ring. As soon as we get in there, we are defeated and we let the Kalesas trample all over us. We can't find any sati at all. As far as diligent effort is concerned, we haven't got a clue what it means. For example, Budo meditation. Sati is nowhere to be found. There is no compulsion, but we welcome with open arms what is convenient and comfortable. For example, the path of the Kalesas. We let the path of the Kalesas be as easy and comfortable as we can, but it's not what it seems. This comfort is the comfort that stokes the fire that consumes us. It's not like the comfort of the Dhamma. After the initial suffering and hardship when you force yourself to battle on, comes the result, which is bliss. There's nothing like this in the approach of the Kalesas, but there is in the Dhamma. When the battle between diligent effort and the Kalesas takes place, no matter how intense, there will be heavy blows landed by both sides as the Kalesas stand their ground. We force ourselves to stay with Budho. The Kalesas will drag us away from Budho. This is them all over. This is very significant and I want you all to remember it. Don't feel sorry for the thoughts and emotions that you had in the past. From the time you were born right up till now, what use have they served you? They're just a case of the Kalesas doing a number on the heart, so from where will they get the results that gives you goodness, happiness and contentment? All they do is build the wheel that fires our hearts. They build the bonfire that burns our hearts. They create the wheel that has always turned our hearts and always will, endlessly. You must fight and struggle to break the cycle of karma through the fundamental power of the parikama. You must be severe in preventing those thoughts and emotions. Take hold of buddho only. There's no need to aim for anything else. We can choose whichever parikama we like, depending on our character, but the one I tell people to use is buddho because it's neutral. The aspect of the Dhamma that best suits the practitioner's character should be upheld as the basis for their meditation. You must have Sati latch onto this spot. Don't let go of it. Whatever you are doing, always have the Parikama, the Chitta and the Sati working together. This is what is meant by someone putting in diligent effort. One day, it is absolutely certain they will achieve stillness. There's no doubt about it. I just ask that you don't take a step backwards and that's all you need to do. This is establishing the fundamentals. It's quite hard to do. I've done these things myself. It's not like I'm teaching you all as if I don't know what I'm doing. I've already done this in a really serious, no-holds-barred manner. As I've related previously in the story of my chitta deteriorating for over a year. It deteriorated and then progressed. 
I carried a load of dukkha. I shouldered a heap of dukkha. Phew, there is no greater load of dukkha than that of the chitta that has made good progress and then lost it. This happened with my heart and got to the stage where I was afraid of what was going to happen. I reached a stage where, as I said, when the chitta had established the basis of stillness, I had to commit to dying, saying, this time the chitta cannot slip backwards. If the chitta deteriorates this time, then I must die. It cannot be any other way. You see what I mean? It might have happened, you know. For someone with my kind of character, this was genuinely absolute and unequivocal. I make the comparison with the monk Godika. The venerable sir killed himself because his chitta slipped backwards. At that time, he related that the state of jhana had fallen away. That's the same as samadhi falling away. Jhana, it translates as focusing attention on a single spot, which is the location of stillness. It was this that had deteriorated. So now there was no spot to latch onto, no spot to depend on. There was just loneliness. He missed the happiness that came only from the stillness of jhana, and nothing could take its place. He said that the peace and tranquility that he aspired to had gone. It was at this time that the pile of suffering was initiated. This played out for him five or six times. In the end, he took a razor and slit his own throat. This is not very clearly explained in the textbooks, but I understand. When I'd done some practice, I understood. I really didn't get the picture when reading the text. There's a very sombre quality about the story that the Lord Buddha told about Venerable Godika. In my practice, I was able to grasp this straight away, even to the point where he took the razor, cut his throat and had blood spurting out, which gave rise to a fascinating investigation. He was predisposed to this trait and so made this the dumb object of his meditation. In that moment, he became enlightened. He had gone forth. At that time, Mara came searching for the Venerable Godika's rebirth consciousness, because Mara still had room for more greed. It shrouds the hearts of worldlings and keeps their hearts in its clutches. It's their boss and it's called Mara. At that time, the chitter of Venerable Godika was free from the power of Mara, and that's why Mara had to dig and delve with such intensity. It shows in the textbooks that the atmosphere became completely overcast and dark because of the psychic energy of Mara digging and delving, searching for the rebirth consciousness of Venerable Godika, even though it was only one heart. It got to the stage where the Lord Buddha had to intervene and bring things under control. He said, You, Mara, you've come digging and delving, searching for the rebirth consciousness of the monk Godika, who is a dependent of the Tathagata. You have no hope of finding it because my charge, the monk Godika, is free from your authority. He has reached the status of Arahant and has gone well to Nibbana. Whatever the immensity of Mara's greed was, all sentient beings that live in the realm of Lokadatu were covered by its power. There was only one Shitta Vijnana of Venerable Godika, so why didn't Mara want to release it? Why did Mara still want to pursue it and bring it back under control? You see, this is the Kalesas. They are never satisfied. Now, the thoughts and imagination of our hearts, things which are one aspect of Mara, 
are a driving force in our hearts. They are the big boss and are called Mara. The Mara Kalesas dominate our hearts. They push and pull, getting us to think and imagine the way they want us to, to until they succeed, even to the extent that they stand their ground and fight against the Dhamma. The Mara Kalesas are afraid they will miss thoughts and imagination. They claim that these things are a release from Dukkha and oppression, because in the initial stages, Training and putting the chitta through ordeals is dukkha. They feel that letting loose in this way makes things a bit easier. Things are a bit easier, all right. Easier to bind our minds through the power of the Kalesa's deception, that's all. But they're not actually aware of this. This is why everyone has to use the big guns at this stage and have a really good crack at it. This is the development of Maga and Pala. They will be developed at this point, and that's for certain. I've given this example for the benefit of you all. I set myself on this point to the extent that I was do or die. I refused to let go. The deterioration and progression that I've previously been involved with built a load of dukkha for my heart simultaneously. There wasn't a day went by that I forgot this. It was buried deeply. There was extreme dukkha involved in this deterioration of the chitta. There was just the wanting for it to happen, the wanting for it to be like it was. This was futile. This happened because the foundation for happiness, peace and tranquility, the foundation for stillness, was not laid correctly. My practice was incorrect. There was only a wish and a casual desire, and so these things had to be cut out. Making progress or slipping backwards, it didn't matter. Wherever it went, I had had enough of coming back empty-handed. This time, I wouldn't be attached to it. What I would be attached to would be Budho, with a reflection in my heart saying, my heart might wander because the Parikama has gone. This was because previously I didn't use Parikama. I just had Sati casually watching what was going on. Maybe I would be off thinking about something in Lokadatu. As a result... Things fell apart before my very eyes. So I turned this around and came up with a new trick. This time, I would have Budo firmly established as my base. Okay, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But I'm going to dwell on Budo. Come what may, I was going to stick to Budo and nothing but Budo. Anything else I would discard. I persisted in the work I was doing in the present for Budo. In other words, my heart truly was what I said it would be. I didn't take things lightheartedly. Once I made my mind up to use Budho, and I established my base as Budho, I never allowed my guard to drop. Even though I would move about during the day, I wouldn't let inattentiveness creep in. Also, when I first started setting my heart this way, I was living on my own. Tanajan Man had gone off to attend the cremation of Lumpo Sao. I stayed on my own at Wat Rangkau, Banna Sinuan. Staying there was very enjoyable, being able to persevere with my meditation around the clock. I was fixed on Budho all the time until it became really clear to me. When the chitta was truly refined, the Parikama disappeared completely. I can disclose this as it is about my own heart. The Parikama Buddha was right there, but when it got to the most subtle stage, there was no thinking about Buddha. It wouldn't appear. 
All that was left was knowingness through and through. I amazed myself. Aye, now, what have you done? I thought. Before I depended on the Parikama Buddha being engaged by Sati, both being together, now the Parikama that I had been concentrating on no longer appeared. If your concentration is on Buddha and it disappears, what do you do? No problem. When it disappears, focus on the knowingness. Fix Sati on the knowingness. That's all you need to do. Don't let go of that point. When the separation occurs, there is no Buddha. So let yourself stay with this knowingness that I've mentioned and there will be harmony and one-pointedness. The Parikama won't appear. I want you to stay with this while observing and not letting Sati wane. Now, when the time is right, this state will unwind and you'll come out of it. As soon as this happens, you can return to the Parikama, get stuck into the Parikama again. Later on, I got the knack of this. Oh yes, when the chitter is truly subtle, the Parikama disappears completely. I knew this unmistakably. I had come to know and understand how to practice. When the Parikama disappeared, I was to stay with the knowingness. See, when you know, let yourself stay with this knowingness. As soon as this state unwinds, get stuck into the Parikama immediately. Sati was my constant companion, both with and without the Parikama. Sati couldn't be broken. Here was somewhere I could establish a base. Gradually it became more and more refined. I no longer got involved in the hurly-burly due to the power of compelling the chitta to focus on nothing else but the Parikama. It was coercion. I had drawn my line in the sand. By nature, I am a very serious person. I'm being honest. I'm not half-hearted. Whatever I do, I'm fully committed. If I say something, then that's the way it is. I'm very intense. So this was how I established my base. As time passed, my practice gradually became tighter and more stable. As it reached the stage where it might well have deteriorated after two or three days in this stage, I said, okay, if it slips backwards, then so be it. I'm not going to concern myself with this. This was because I had hoped for better things before, but to no avail. Okay, if progress is made, then so be it, but I'm not going to release Buddha. I really latched onto this. Progress or deterioration didn't even enter my mind. This was because I'd held on to them before long enough. They'd caused me enough dukkha as it was. I was going to stick with Buddha as my meditation increasingly became tighter and more stable. When I got to the stage where progress ought to have dropped off, normally after two or three days, progress would evaporate right before my eyes, leaving nothing behind but a worthless wretch beyond hope, building dukkha for himself. I let go of all this, but I wouldn't let go of the parikama. In the end, my practice didn't deteriorate. It became steadier and steadier. It became subtler and subtler as I slowly fastened onto that spot. I thought, oh, I slipped backwards because I lacked a parikama. This was the cause all along. Now I wasn't going to slip backwards. From that point on, step by step, my meditation got stronger until I fought with all my might. 
My energy was the samadhi that occurred in my heart in a most outstanding way. Wherever I went, the knowingness was prominent. Sati was stuck to it. Even without the parikama, I let Sati stick there. I took the knowingness in place of the parikama. There was no parikama. This spot was the place of Sati, being the spot that I latched onto. Progress increased consistently. What I'm speaking about now is training at the elementary level. It's really intense, you know, for the chitta. My heart was an inferno at that time. If there was no samatha dhamma, that is, calmness and tranquility, occasionally intervening, there is no place for us monks to rest. Some may say that to be called a monk is higher than a devaputra devata. However, the Avicii hell still burns monks, even though it's been said that they are devaputra devatas. This is because the Kalesas fear nothing, nothing but the Dhamma that is. If Sati Dhamma takes command, they will yield. Make a resolution. This is a very important point. It lets us establish the base for the fundamentals. I have no doubt about the guidance that I'm giving you, my companions. I've already been down this path myself and experienced the results, step by step. Right up to the present, all came from the A for apple, B for boat. I've said this is the Buddha. Don't let go of this. As soon as the chitta was still and calm, the frenzied hurly-burly of my normal state of mind, which used to agitate me and drag me off into the outside world, abated. Drinking samatha dhamma has a delicious taste for the heart and makes it content. So now there was a course to follow. In the case of various mental objects that previously spewed out thoughts about all sorts of forms, sounds, smells and tastes which heated up the heart, they gradually faded away. In the end, I had no interest in them. Stillness increased in strength. I stayed with the stillness. When there is contentment, nothing will disturb the heart. A single piercing thought arising is a disturbance to the heart. There. When I reached the full extent of my stillness, thoughts were nothing but a disturbance to the heart. I didn't want to think. This is what is called being addicted to samadhi. That is, a piercing thought arising disturbs the heart and there's an uncompromised addiction to the knowingness all the time. During both day and night, I had no interest in light and dark, not at any time at all. There was only the pleasure derived from the knowingness, which was always calm and firm. Nothing happened to cause a disturbance. This is called the food of the heart. Even when the heart gets only this amount of food, it's enough to sustain it. It's for this reason that those who practice samadhi become enchanted by the effort they put into developing it. They don't want to break out and explore with panya. They're quite happy to stagnate where they are. I stagnated like this for five years. Tanajan Man, he hauled me out of this, and I haven't forgotten what he did. When I eventually came out of this, I made some strides in the direction of Panya. Now, I was really buzzing because this was done in conjunction with Samadhi. Samadhi was the support for Panya. The two went side by side, but Samadhi wouldn't lead to using Panya. It's not capable of doing so. After I started to use the panya that Ajahn Man had dragged out of me, I gradually saw the results. 
Oh, now I understand. And off I went. Once the realization happened, that was it, I was off. Once I saw the results, diligent effort and fascination with the effort involved with Panya became self-perpetuating. From there on, I was engrossed with Panya, so much so that I neglected to rest in Samadhi. Rightly or wrongly, I accused Samadhi of being too passive. I couldn't see that it had much use. On the other hand, Panya was the slayer of the Kalesas. Samadhi didn't destroy the Kalesas, it just trimmed them back for the sole purpose of calmness and stillness of the heart. However, the slaying of the Kalesas was done with Panya. I could see the effects of destroying the Kalesas with Panya, and I was enthralled by this. Oh, and I neglected to rest in Samadhi. I wasn't satisfied. My personality is such that I am really adventurous. This was something Ajahn Man had to restrain in regard to applying Panya so that I didn't get ahead of myself. He brought me under control. He said that I misunderstood Sankara. Sankara that doesn't know its limitations can be Samudhiya. This is what he meant. Sankara is Panya, but if it is used in a way that doesn't know its limitations, Sankara associated with Samudhiya can infiltrate. Sankara then transforms into Samudhiya, which is unaware of what is real and important. For this reason, Ajahn Man had me show restraint by entering Samadhi. As soon as the chitta had received its fill of stillness, it was off down the path of Panya again. So one follows the other around and around. As soon as the chitta was tired and fatigued and knew its energy was waning, it went off to rest in Samadhi. This is the appropriate and proper way for a practitioner to practice. It's very appropriate. In the scholarly approach, the Lord Buddha did explain this, but I wasn't too interested in the scholarly approach. It gets your head spinning through being deeply absorbed in it. When you are truly at death's door, you just go and rest in samadhi. Improving the chitter in the first instance is difficult. You must be committed and steadfast. You can't be lackadaisical. Don't look upon any kind of work as being something wonderful. On the contrary, worldly work is pitiful, and work in the revolving wheel of life is the work that burns the heart. Don't be influenced by those who are on the treadmill, who, throughout time, let the fire burn. All of the realms of Lokadatu are full of these subjected to rounds of birth and death. They are turning in the endless cycle. The Dhamma is freedom from the cycle of life. Let the Dhamma be your anchor. Let it be your damper through the application of diligent effort. Easy or hard, never stop the fight. Fight for the sake of happiness. The Dukkha associated with diligent effort is Dukkha for the sake of happiness. Dukkha associated with the power of the Kalesas is Dukkha for the sake of paramount Dukkha. If you can separate them out this way, you'll have progress in your heart. This is enough for Panya to make some advances. Now, things will be burst wide open. This isn't the same as Samadhi. Samadhi is like having a glass full of water. When it's at its highest status, it's like a full glass of water. There is no way to do better than that. This is its upper limit. I've experienced this for myself. Whatever I did, I was firmly focused on the one particular spot. In the end, 
I got to reckoning that the knowingness was Nibbana. I made a wild guess that this was Nibbana with a knowingness that was stupid. The foolish knowingness is Samadhi's dilemma. Tanajan Man dragged me out of this and down the path of Panya. After I set off down the path of Panya, things started to improve. Wherever I saw things distinctly, they simply let go of their own accord. Oh yes, this is how you exterminate the Kalesas, I said to myself, and I'd be completely engrossed in this all the time. Enjoying and being engrossed in the way of Panya is enjoyment for the purpose of liberation from suffering. Enjoyment through truly seeing the real dangers. Enjoyment of this kind already has awareness. It's a buzz and whirs away. Diligent effort knows no day, no night, no month, no year and no posture. Lying down brings no sleep. It works away of its own accord via automatic sati and panya. It's for this reason that the chitta has to be forced to rest in the peace and quiet of samadhi. When the chitta has rested sufficiently, it withdraws and proceeds with panya. There's no need to fret about samadhi. When progress is being made with panya, there is no need to worry about samadhi. You can go for broke. As soon as panya starts to flag and goes off into samadhi for a rest, there's no need to be concerned about panya. Just let them do their work at different times. When in samadhi, don't give panya a second thought. Discharge it all. No matter how calm the chitta becomes, just let it be still. Let them do their jobs at different times. Now, as peacefulness strengthens, the chitta becomes more energised. It's like removing a splinter or a thorn. When the discomfort abates, you feel completely fine. This is the potency of resting in samadhi. It's the appropriate partner for the various activities of panya. From there, it's off down the track of Panya, and the same has to be said, there is no need to fret about Samadhi. This is the way to go. You needn't doubt that this is the right and proper way to proceed. Panya will appear constantly. It will continually expand. It will become more and more refined and meticulous. This is because the Kalesas become subtler and subtler. Sati and Panya, which is their opponent, their adversary, drives itself relentlessly. When you're very excited and daring, karma kalesa and karma tanha become extremely bold. Apply panya and use the investigation of the body. Examine every part, every component of the body. This will depend on which aspect of the body suits you, such as hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, liver, kidneys, entrails, and etc. Inside here is the noble truth of Samudia, whose sole purpose is to bind and inter us. Then improve your investigation of using the Magga noble truth, which is Panya. When, you invest, when your investigation is better and you understand things, you'll slowly extricate yourself. Your Upadana will diminish. This is Panya. It destroys the Kalesas. This is seen clearly by the heart. From this point, gains will be exhaustive. If you get to the stage where sati and panya are on automatic, then whatever happens, freedom from dukkha is a certainty. It's as if the time of nibbana reaches out to you. This can cause your persistence and effort to be excessive, 
and then you rush things. At this, you've reached the time to take a rest in Samadhi. So, you see, Samadhi is extremely important. You've arrived at the time to rest. It has to be that working and resting go hand in hand. They have equal necessity. Don't go thinking that working yields results and resting doesn't. Resting accumulates energy, which makes it the ideal partner for doing any kind of work. So why wouldn't it produce results? The benefits of resting are one thing. The benefits of working are another. They encourage each other. Now, when the time arrives to behave this way, then do as I've said. After that, gradually and extensively lay bare, know and understand things that you have never known or understood before. There's no need to go and look this up in a textbook. As I've said before, sadhu. I have previously studied from textbooks. When panya based on memory comes up against panya based on truth, well, panya based on memory has some shortcomings, I can tell you. Panya based on truth brings out the real thing. It unravels things. It brings about investigation which takes things apart, detaches from them, destroys them and slashes them down. And all this is seen distinctly by the heart. However, what I remember from my studies is just that, a memory. It doesn't provide alleviation from the kalesas. Passing examinations on the Tipitaka doesn't remove the kalesas. If study isn't turned into practice for the sake of removing the kalesas, then they won't budge. I've seen this clearly for myself within my own heart. At this point, study is quite superficial. It's lightweight. It's a veneer in comparison. Not only that, it's quite specific. Scholarly study isn't that extensive. The Lord Buddha only gave the bare essentials in the Tipitaka. He didn't go into great detail. We say that it's as if the Tipitaka dominates Lokadhatu, but it doesn't. If it were in practical terms, it would be much more extensive and profound. So much so, you can't guess the extent. Apart from the practical side, I did study, and it was like that. Through practice, I came to know the truth. It's because of this that I know that the recollection and truth are quite different. In the case of recalling the lessons, it doesn't matter how much you can recollect. They are just memories. Doubt thus creeps in, in an unyielding way. This is the kalesas. It's nothing but following the kalesas, and it reaches the level where even Nibbana is doubted. This is what happens with perceived and memorized knowledge. It doesn't remove a single kalesa. As soon as you encounter the truth coming in from any direction, beginning with the chitta entering samadhi and becoming calm, you have realizations such as, oh, being calm is like this. See what I mean? This is how you see things. There are a number of levels of calmness that increase in subtlety. You realize these things clearly by means of what's true and doubt gradually disappears. This goes on until samadhi attains its highest level and you know this is its highest level. But what you don't know is that this is suitable for applying to your practice further down the track or that you can become obsessed with samadhi. Someone who knows more than you can drag you out from this, just as Tanajan Man did with me. He was more advanced than I was. I moved forward following in his footsteps. As soon as I went off down the path of Panya, 
I understood what both harm and merit were through the application of that panya. At that point, I made steady progress. This is called Bhavana Maya Panya. Previously, I learned from the textbooks that the Lord Buddha said Bhavana Maya Panya meant that this Panya is born entirely out of meditation. This confused me. I didn't have a clue what it meant. Even though I was also doing some meditation, this type of Panya never arose. I practiced during the whole time that I studied the text. I was never lackadaisical about meditation, but this type of Panya never occurred, and that's why I was confused. As soon as I reached the stage where this kind of Panya arose, I thought, Hmm, did you notice that? Bhavana Maya Panya. Panya has arisen entirely out of meditation. It doesn't depend on sensual contact, such as sight, sound, smell, taste or bodily contact. It doesn't matter whether or not sense objects make contact so as to arouse the chitta and give rise to the sati panya which fathoms them out. Even if these objects cause disturbances, sati panya will continually exist in its own right. This is what is meant by bhavana maya panya. It is panya that arises purely out of meditation. Whether or not contact was made with any sense objects, sati panya would develop by itself and would battle the kalesas step by step inside. There was no need to depend on viewing or hearing these objects prior to commencing investigation. This is not necessary if sati panya is sufficiently developed. The moment any object did make contact, Satipanya would nestle right in alongside it immediately. If no objects made contact, Satipanya would seek out other approaches because the kalesas dwell inside the heart. When the kalesas mustered themselves, Satipanya would be aware of them at various levels. This is Bhavana Maya Panya. It was as clear cut as this, and that's why I dare speak about it. Even if I'd completed my studies, I wouldn't have dared to go so far. I would have been groping around, not knowing much about anything. The moment this knowledge arose in my heart, all doubt vanished. My heart was bold and triumphant. I didn't need confirmation from anyone. It was self-evident. This is what's called the truth. Progress accelerated to Mahasati and Mahapanya. Bhavana Maya Panya... Mahasati and Mahapanya were bonded together. When Bhavana Maya Panya became proficient, it amalgamated with Mahasati and Mahapanya. At this time, they had reached a stage where they were deeply ingrained. Mahasati and Mahapanya is the level at which Satipanya is deeply seated. They steadily permeated the chitta, becoming more and more refined. The kalesas were also subtle. Mahasati and Mahapanya were like blow torches burning through the kalesas, burning away constantly by themselves until there was nowhere for the kalesas to go. They expelled the kalesas from every avenue, including the eyes, ears, nose, tongue and body. These are the highways for obtaining sights, sounds, smells, tastes and bodily contacts in accordance with the way the kalesas gather them in. From the beginning, since the investigation of Asuba, Dukkang, Anichang and Anatta investigating my corporeality, the corporeality of others, 
the corporate reality of women, the corporate reality of men, the corporate reality of animals, and the corporate reality of people as being a suba, a nichang, dukang, and anatta, I hit out against garnering those things. When Mahasati and Mahapanya understood about these things, they recalled from them because their eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body are the highways of Kalesas and Avija cruise to make their living. When Satipanya struck at the garnering of these sense objects and, little by little, knew what the Kalesas were up to, the chitta with Satipanya extricated itself from them. What do we believe they are? We hold the view that they are animals and people, but where exactly is the animal? Investigate and see that they are just the shape of a skeleton. So, exactly where is the person or the animal? Where are they beautiful and attractive? They are just feces and urine through and through. So where is the beauty and attractiveness in that? This is was how Satipanya unraveled them. After that, after the stage where karma kalesa can be overcome by severing and discarding it, what remained was Nama Dhamma. Now, I was to travel down the Anichang, Dukang and Ta route. My depthness continued to improve. In the beginning, I would bring up a suba before Anichang, Dukang and Anatta would intrude in even the slightest way, and it was a suba that was my strongest practice. It resolved the issue of the body being loathsome until there was no more need for a suba. From there on in, it was all Nama Dhamma. There was just a Nichang Dukang Anatta. The use of Asuba relates to the body. At this stage, the body no longer has any meaning. So what would be the point of investigating Asuba? I was already full to the brim with it. I knew what it was. I didn't need it, so I discarded it. What remained was Nama Dhamma. Where did Vedna, Sanya, Sankara and Vijnana come from? I chased them down their hole. Where does Vedna come from? Does a corpse have Vedna? Vedna is found in those who are alive. In those who are alive, it comes from the chitta, doesn't it? I chased it down its hole and went to its source. Vedna, Sanya, Sankara and Vijnana emanate from there. They can be rounded up there any time. In the end, a slight adjustment was required to reach the source, which is Avijar. This is the birthplace of these things. This is the place that goes crazy for them. These Nama Dhammas are its tools. The group of Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vijnana are the highways of Avijja. They are the tools that seek out a living for Avijja. When these Nama Dhammas are analysed by disaggregating them in order to see their reality, they will come back together as Avijja is reached. These things are merely tools. They are the highways. They are not the Kalesas, nor are they Avijja. The real Avijja is not any of these. There, this was quite obvious. While the Kalesas still rule the roost, any bright luminosity that there is in the chitta can't be discovered completely until you actually get down there and a obliteration happens. There has to be some level of obscurity and dullness there constantly. This murkiness is the Kalesas. They conceal and shroud that knowing chitta, 
preventing it from knowing all there is to know. Now, when these things come under investigation to the extent that Avija, that which is the most refined and delicate shroud, was reached and obliterated, the chitta shone forth as a bright luminosity. That is, it was like heaven and earth subsiding, Avija separated from the heart. At that time, knowledge sprang up with all its might because there was no longer anything to conceal it. There was no such thing as dullness. Dullness is for the Kalesas. As soon as the shroud of the Kalesas had been completely lifted, there is nothing to conceal this knowledge. Dullness is nowhere to be found. This is what is meant by aloko udupadi. A bright luminosity arose, and there was no need to confirm this with anyone. In the end, all I can say is sadhu. There would be no need to confirm this with the Lord Buddha, even if he were sitting in front of us. It's the same Dhamma, Sanditiko. Its announcement already reverberates throughout Lokadhatu. It lets you know and understand for yourself. He taught so that we could know for ourselves. When we know for ourselves, what would we turn around to ask him about? If you had to do that, Sanditiko would be meaningless. When you do actually get there, you have the realization, oh, okay, that's what it is. It's an immediate realization. When you reach this level, you've reached Dhammadhatu. The Lord Buddha is Dhammadhatu. He is entirely Dhammadhatu. How extensive is Dhammadhatu? It is vast as an ocean, which is the delivery point for the water from all the various rivers. All the river water that flows accumulates there. It's transformed into the ocean. Now, how extensive is that? Those who, through their own efforts, have reached the ultimate state of pristine purity, their chittas are dhammadhatu. They are one and the same. However much this extends to the Lord Buddha, what would there be to question him about? There is no past and no future. The Lord Buddha reaching Nibbana so many years and months ago, there's none of this. There is only Dhammadhatu. It's like the waters of the ocean covering the entire earth. Can you see that? Who knows what the ocean is? The same applies to Dhammadhatu. The sum of all those who know, all those who are pure, flows into Dhammadhatu, and at this, everything is identical. Oh, and there's no need to ask the Lord Buddha to confirm this. It's absolutely crystal clear that the number of times that Buddhas have reached Nibbana in the past or will do in the future has no meaning whatsoever. They will all combine into Dhammadhatu. All the Arahants, all the Pacheka Buddhas and all the Buddhas are all Dhammadhatu. They all know this quite clearly. So, when talking about the practice... This is the result that they see. The chitta within them is bright and dazzling. There is nothing concealing or shrouding the heart that can create obstacles for it, nothing at all. When the kalesas, the obstacle builders, are all gone, there is nothing left to create obstacles. There is just consistent emptiness all the time, as the Lord Buddha explained to the venerable Mogaraja, Sunyato Lokang Avekasu. Mogaraja Sada Sato Atanuditang Uhacha
evan machutaro siya, evan lokang avekantang, machuraja na pasati. Watch, Mogaraja, you must be someone who has sati at all times. Listen, sati at all times. Do you understand this? Sada sato, having sati at all times. Investigate the world and see it as being void, empty. Pull out atanuditi. This is having the opinion that there is a person, a self. There is us and there is them. Atanuditang uhacha. Then you will pass beyond the king of death. The king of death looks but cannot find those who consider the world as void in this way. There. Machuraja Napasati. This is the complete translation. There's nothing here that can be objected to. There, it's completely void. So what can you do? What could there possibly be that could affect you or that you could become attached to? When there's no attachment to oneself, what is there to cling to? The self is the Kalesis, and they are the self and they have been completely destroyed. The Kalesas have been totally severed. So what's going to appear as a self, as a person? In this state, attachment and clinging are gone. When this is the situation, what in the three spheres of Lokodatu could you become attached to? As an example, suppose we see various things that we've never seen before. We acknowledge that we have never set eyes on them. However, as we have no attachment to ourselves, are we going to get attached to those things? Can you see this? You'll see we're not attached. This is called not being attached to oneself at all, not being attached to anything in the three spheres of Lokadatu. So this is what the chitter is like when it has stepped forward with all its might. It is Dhammadatu, through and through. Dhammadatu is the ultimate Dhamma. It's the extreme limit of one's ability. The Lord Buddha was despondent about the normal world. When he looked at the wheel of life of Sataloka, he saw it as nothing but a rubbish bin, a rubbish bin full of urine and feces, of fuel and fire that scorches Sataloka endlessly. It's a place where peace can't be found as the fire incinerates the world. It's the calaces that burn these things. Their hearts are full of kalesas, but they can't be seen. Whichever beings you care to look at in the three spheres of Lokadatu, they are beings who perpetuate and who are obsessed with the kalesas. They pull out the red carpet for the kalesas. The carpet of the kalesas is pleasure, and the things that give pleasure. They see all these things as good. This is the kalesas carpet, their sitting cloth, good and proper. These beings lay out the carpet of the Kalesas. In the end, they have satisfaction in being dissatisfied. Anger and ill will, well, they are satisfied with being angry. They spread that carpet everywhere. They sugarcoat everything. When looked at through the eyes of Dhamma, there is nothing more revolting than the Kalesas. However, the Kalesas tell us that they are the ultimate in being spick and span. In the eyes of Dhamma, they are the ultimate in filth. Nothing outdoes the kalesas in the filthy stakes. So listen to what I'm telling you. This is what made the Lord Buddha despondent. What does this world mould and fashion? 
It spreads and smooths out the carpet everywhere, giving beings pleasure in appearance, pleasure in eating, pleasure in sleeping, and pleasure in resting. It provides enjoyment in sights, in sounds, in smells, and in tastes. Moral or immoral, it takes pleasure in them all. In the Sataloka, there is no such thing as being displeased. There's addiction to everything. This is the carpeting of the Kalaises doing a really good job of completely sugarcoating everything. Sentient beings, therefore, have no way to improve their situation if they don't use Dhamma to make improvements. So you must rely on the Dhamma. Start with meditation. Well then, get going. You'll then come to realise what I've been telling you, and you won't have to refer back to the Lord Buddha at all. With regard to how the Kalesas lay out the carpet, this will be perceived clearly through the Dhamma's vision which dwells in our heart. When this is certain in the heart, why would you ask someone else about it? When you know the same things and you understand the same things as them, what would you be after in asking questions of these people? This is what certainty in the heart is all about. This is the Dhamma that is most splendid. It is more splendid than anything else. To call this splendid implies there's still some coarseness, so even this description still doesn't do it justice. This goes beyond any comparison that can be made with the world of urine, the world of faeces and the toilet world. These are the worlds carpeted by the Kalesas, which deceive their inhabitants and let them die under the piles of one another, with no qualms about repeating the process. This is what their carpet is. The eyes of Dhamma can't bear to look. So, what have you got to say about that? How could the Lord Buddha not be despondent about this? Who wouldn't be displeased with this carpet, the carpet of the Kalesas? Where does this find happiness in the Dhamma? It's cheerful about carpeting the toilet of the Kalesas. The toilet of the Kalesas, which does nothing but deceive and which shows no interest in the Dhamma. Consequently, it's here that we need to blaze the trail and in no uncertain terms. This is what we need to do. Clear a trail for Dhamma to come out and challenge the Kalesas that spread out the carpet. We need to clear a trail so that Dhamma can see these Kalesas distinctly. Then, Wherever we look, wherever we observe, we know. Oh yes, there is only the filth and foulness of the Kalesas. After they get together, there is nothing that beats the Kalesas for grubbiness. However, the Kalesas have their own version of what is first rate, which they believe is the pinnacle of cleanliness. In the eyes of blind people such as you, there is utter delusion about this. The vision of Dhamma is twenty-twenty. That's the way it is. So, all of you, make up your minds, alright? I'm quite apprehensive for those practitioners who are close to me. Who will give serious and thorough desanas that are beyond doubt as I do? I want to say this. It's not that I'm bragging, you understand. I say these things to engender confidence in my companions. There's nothing incorrect in what I teach to my fellow practitioners. You can rely on this because I've passed this way already in the rough and ready, the middle, and the refined stages of both the Kalesas and Dhamma. I've been through all this. It's filled my heart. Consequently, I can expose the truth for all my followers to listen to, allowing them to make a resolution to practice. 
This world is the most foul and dirty world that there is. It really is disgusting. It lacks ethics and standards wherever you look. Just see for yourselves. All over the world is embroiled in the wheel of Dukkha, the wheel of life. It's turned by the fire of the heap of Dukkha that roasts the heart in it endlessly. Have you got a heart that has adequate sides, a lid, and the high ground that you can have as an anchor, which you can be confident in? You don't, do you? You wriggle and squirm like someone drowning in the sea. That's exactly what it's like. You bob up and down, splashing and thrashing about in there. You have no idea where the shore is. If you swim or float, this is where you remain. If you don't swim or float, you die. Sometimes the swell subsides, but there's no firm ground to hold on to. So sentient beings sinking in the immense conventional or popular world are exactly the same as this. There's not even the slightest bit of difference. There's no shore, no bank, if there is no dhamma to act as the support, just the same as the person drowning in the ocean. We, therefore, have to construct solid ground for ourselves by way of samadhi. As for sila, don't let malicious intention smother it. Be vigilant. Take pride in maintaining your sila. When there's no hint of worry about one sila, then developing samadhi is easy because of the absence of worry. Likewise, you should force yourself to develop samadhi as I have already mentioned. Give it all you've got. When you don't give in, stillness and tranquility will arise. From then onwards is the path to tread in order to throw stillness and tranquility wide open. This is samadhi. Advancing from samadhi is the blossoming of panya, as I have said, right up to vimuti, freedom from suffering. At this point, everything will be brilliant and beyond doubt. When everything has been transcended, the behaviour of the elements and the khandas, such as those of myself who's a monk, I contrast in every way with the conventional world, but I talk about this only to the inner circle. That is, I use this approach, but only to be in keeping with the behaviour of the conventional world. To refer to this as a vice, or as good fortune, or as an offence, doesn't get to the heart of the matter. However, when these elements and khandas are in the conventional world, conventional practices have to be observed. The Lord Buddha and all the Arahants observed the same etiquette. They did not exceed the basic principles of the Dhamma or the Vinaya, because this is the custom of this conventional world. I have to observe the conventions of we monks, just like the rest of the world observes conventions. I am a monk pure in the principles of Dhamma Vinaya. I have to maintain the purity of my practice to the extent that the conventional world agrees it is acceptable. The natural element of the chitta that is free from suffering remains a unique category. The elements and the khandas that belong to the conventional world have to perform in their own natural way. If you wanted to make the Lord Buddha distressed about things that aren't right, well, you can't. Such concepts as wrong, faulty and right don't exist. He has gone beyond all of these. These concepts of right, wrong, good and bad belong to the conventional world. His chitta has surpassed all this. This is called vimuti and this is something else. What I am speaking about is a kind of secret. I must practice this way all the time until the khandas break up. 
Taking care of Monk's business has to be done perfectly, as it was in the beginning. It has to be suitable for the conventional world of elements and kundas. Impudence is a behaviour found in the conventional world, so I exhibit only an amount that is in keeping with the principles of a monk who lives in the conventional world. I'm not speaking about this element of the chitta. That is, I've gone beyond this and I've acknowledged that I have done so. Living in the conventional world, I have to act in accordance with the standards of the conventional world. Right now, the Buddhist religion leaves me choked up and speechless. Wherever I look these days, I can't see even an inkling of the religion rubbing off on the monks, novices, the lay people or us Buddhists. There's just the calaises covering us from head to foot, all over the lay community, all over the monastics, all over them and all over us. I can't see an inkling of Dhamma, of prudence. The time when we practiced in order for some of the Dhamma to rub off on us has passed us by. There's just the calaises leading us by the nose non-stop, and we are drowning in them. The religion of the Lord Buddha is, therefore, slowly shutting down through the power of the calaises that have remoulded themselves into bars of gold. They badmouth the real gold, which is the Dhamma, deriding it as being full of piss, giving up on it as leftovers and waste that has no value at all. The things that are seen as valuable are the things that the Kalesas fashion and praise so that all beings become well and truly infatuated with them. This is the way it is. Consequently, it's our behaviour to go and use these things. This is nothing but the behaviour of the Kalesas. This world is therefore transformed into a clean world, a world cleaned by the Kalesas, things which are extremely grubby. Can you see this? It's because of this that Dukkha is never far away from sentient beings who are deluded by the Kalesas, things that never stop deceiving. The Dhamma of the Lord Buddha doesn't deceive. Dhamma of any magnitude leads to peace and tranquility. The more Dhamma is exposed, the brighter the heart becomes. Where would Dukkha come from? What higher happiness could there be than a chitta that is pure? We know the problem with the elements and the khandas is that they suffer aches and pains all over. Their happiness is superficial, and we are aware that that is all it is. At the moment, the Buddhist religion is about to sink completely. There will be nothing left of it. This is due to the power of the kalesas that put themselves on offer. Oh dear, I watch the kalesas putting themselves on offer, and it disgusts me. I'm being straight with you. It's reached the stage where I can't bear to look. I look at the monks and the novices and those in our tradition, though not extensively, as they're not something that you can have any faith in. They're an eyesore. That's because they hinder sealer and thwart the Dhamma, and that's the way it is. I can't bear to look. The physician lives here. The rascals who are heedless and bent on doing damage to the religion do so right in front of my eyes. It's like they have no shame. They are brazen-faced for all to see. So what's this all about? How can I agree with them on this? It doesn't matter whether they are of our tradition, such as monks and novices like us. I can't possibly agree with them. Because the one person who will care for and protect the religion lives right here. How can I become friendly with someone bent on damaging the religion right in front of my eyes? 
This is what I mean about the splitting of the various sects. When they are too daring and brash, they can split apart. Then other sects get established. Later, they split up again. This is the way it is because the Calaces don't take a backward step to allow the differences to be patched up in the absence of Calaces. There's just the continual push before separation. You know, if we're not interested in having the Dharma firmly established, we can't patch over the differences. There'll only be division. This is as much as I'm going to say today. This is enough. I'm tired now. That concludes the Dharma teaching Establishing the Fundamentals by the Venerable Ajahn Mahabua. If you'd like to hear more talks by Ajahn Mahabua and other meditation masters of the forest tradition of Theravada Buddhism, subscribe to the Forest Path podcast using your favorite podcast app. According to the wishes of Ajahn Mahabua, this episode is for free distribution only because Dharma should not be sold in goods like goods in the marketplace. Permission to reproduce this teaching in any way for free distribution as a gift of Dhamma is hereby granted and no further permission need be obtained. Reproduction in any way for commercial gain is strictly prohibited. You can find out more about the Forest Path podcast by going to the link in the description below this episode where you can find information about previous episodes and teachers as well as the English text. The Forest Path Podcast is part of the Everyday Dharma Network. If you go to everydaydharma.net, you can discover more about the three other podcasts on the network also. This podcast is produced and narrated by Sol Hanna. If you like these audio resources that I'm making available for free in a convenient podcast format, you may want to become a supporter of the Everyday Dharma Network by using the Ko-Fi Creators platform. There are links in the description below. Thank you for listening. May you experience insight and peace. Thank you.